Welcome to Overlooked. My name is Yemi, and I'll be your host for the show. Released weekly, I share Overlooked stories from around the world with you. This will include the good, the bad, the weird, and sometimes the absolutely hilarious. Come back often, share with your friends, and feel free to add the podcast to your regular podcast rotation, wherever you get your podcasts. If you come across stories or articles that you think should be featured here, please don't hesitate to share them. Now, it's time for this week's episode. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to a new episode. I hope you are all doing well. It started snowing where I am, so I've already started to prepare my winter survival kit. My kit includes a comfy chair, a cuddly blanket, and warm socks. If you have winter where you are, do you have a winter survivor kit or do you just go with the flow? Anyway, this week has been very, very tough. I do not have to admit it here, but here we are. Mostly because as a Nigerian or just as a human in general, I bore witness to the fatal use of force by the armed forces on unarmed citizens. In fact, by Friday, had to willfully disconnect from social media and the news in general. That being said, this episode comes with a listener discretion warning. Some of the items I'm going to discuss will definitely not be suitable for younger audiences. It is a very strong viewer discretion warning, so I will give it here. And while I talk about the NSARS story later, for now, let's start with Cameroon where gunmen stormed a school on Saturday and opened fire indiscriminately. They ended up killing at least six children and wounding about eight more at the Mother Francisca International Bilingual Academy in the city of Kumba, which is located in the country's southwest region. The report said that they arrived on motorbikes and in civilian clothes. The UN, or United Nations, has described it as the worst atrocity since the resumption of the school year earlier this month. I have linked to the UN's reports in the blog. It was also located on Twitter. Some children were reportedly injured when they tried to jump from second-story windows just to escape. Videos that have been circulating on social media that were filmed by local journalists appeared to show adults rushing from the school with children in their arms surrounded by wailing onlookers. One photo, which was verified by the Reuters news agency, showed the inside of a classroom where a pile of dried blood had pulled on the floor near some scattered flip-flops. While it's unclear if the attack is linked to an ongoing struggle between the army and some groups that are trying to form a breakaway state called Ambazonia in the English-speaking West, in September, some of the separatist fighters on social media warned against school reopening in Cameroon's English-speaking Western regions. The fighters said that they could not guarantee children's safety in schools and asked that the central government withdraw the military if they wanted the schools to open. But it was a grim new low in a region that has since 2017 seen hundreds of people die and thousands of people displaced because of this conflict. Many children are unable to attend school. Cameroon's two Anglophone regions, the Northwest and Southwest regions, are home to a large minority of English speakers in a country where French speakers are the overwhelming majority. The crisis in the northwest and southwest regions of Cameroon is now about four years old. It started in 2016 
when lawyers and teachers took to the streets of Bawa and Bamendia to protest the denomination of French in Anglophone schools and courts. The situation later escalated in October 2017 when militant secessionist groups, led by Julius Siseku Ayuketabe, symbolically proclaimed the independence of a new nation, including the two Anglophone regions, into a new state they call Ambazonia. The government's lethal response to the protests provoked rebels to declare 2017 Independence Day for their new region, and that eventually triggered even a stronger crackdown from the authorities. The clashes that have happened between Cameroon's military and separatist fighters have led to the deaths of over 3,000 people. It has also forced hundreds and thousands of people to run away from their homes. In Egypt, they have now unveiled a new visitor facilities on the plateau outside Cairo, where the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Great Sphinx are found. They are the country's most visited heritage sites and the sole remaining wonder of the ancient world. The restaurant is called Nine Pyramids Lounge, and it covers an area of 1,341 square meters. It also overlooks the Giza pyramids. There will also be a fleet of new environmentally friendly buses to guide tourists around the plateau. Tourism represents about 15% of Egypt's national output. However, officials have said that the sector is losing a lot of money, about a billion dollars each month, after shutting down for several months due to the spread of coronavirus. I thought this will be good to add here. So when air restrictions are no longer enforced as much as they are today, once you're planning your vacation, hey, why not put Egypt on your list? In Seychelles, the opposition candidate, Anglican priest Waverin Ram Kalawan, has won the presidential election. He won with 54.9% of valid votes cast, taken over from the incumbent president, Danny Ferre. This is the first opposition victory since their independence over 40 years ago. It was also Mr. Ramkalawan's seventh attempt to become president in the elections. His supporters have been celebrating all over the streets in the capital. The incumbent, Danny Ferre, who accepted defeat, was running under the renamed United Seychelles Party that had been in power since the year 1977. He wished his successor good luck. The Seychelles includes a group of 115 islands. It is in the Indian Ocean and lies off the coast of East Africa, northeast of Madagascar. It is also a former British colony, as I alluded to earlier, and became independent in the year 1976. In India, the air quality in the capital of New Delhi has plunged to severe levels as a smoky haze has now settled over the city. This happened only a few days after the state government initiated stricter measures to fight against chronic air pollution. According to Safar, which is India's main environmental monitoring agency, the air quality index in New Delhi rose past the 270 mark. For comparison, the World Health Organization considers any level above 25 to be unsafe. This recent increase happened after agricultural fires in neighboring states sent smoke across the city. New Delhi is currently one of the world's most polluted cities. 
Air pollution levels had dropped during the height of the COVID-related lockdowns. But with industrial activities coming along and with the onset of colder weather, air quality in the city has now fallen back to unhealthy levels. October is the time of year where farmers in neighboring states start to clear their land for harvest. They typically set a fire, leading to a surge in pollution levels. The government has put a ban on these fires because of air pollution, but the farmers are refusing to stop. According to state air quality monitors, farm fire smoke accounted for 56% of New Delhi's pollution in 2018 and 44% in the year 2019. During the peak pollution periods of 2019, Air pollution levels in New Delhi sometimes soared even off the measurable scale. In fact, the yellow haze was so thick that for several days schools were forced to close and flights were actually diverted. In the past month, satellite detectors have recorded more than 12,000 fires in the state, with over 1,200 farmers already receiving fines in Punjab alone. To move farmers away from using fires, the government is offering subsidized machines. And farmers who are then caught starting fires are blocked from accessing the bank loans. Experts have said that the political will to tackle pollution is still lacking, with the central government and affected states unable to agree on the tough actions that are needed to clean the air. IKEA the world's biggest furniture business is planning a second-hand furniture venture. The Swedish giant will buy back old IKEA furniture, provided that it is in good condition, by offering vouchers of up to 50% of the original value. The buyback initiative will launch to coincide with Black Friday, and the deal will run in 27 countries. Only non-upholstered items like chairs, tables, and bookshelves are going to be eligible for return, and a simple price quality structure is going to be applied. IKEA has said that anything that can be sold will be recycled, and the store has also said that it will have a dedicated area in every store where people can sell their old furniture and buy them back after they have been repaired or just buy refurbished furniture. Did you know that the Nobel Prize... Yes, I'm sneaking in your fun fact. Yes. Um, so did you know that Nobel Prize started only because Alfred Nobel read his own obituary and did not like what he saw? So Alfred Nobel was a very successful and wealthy man. He had become an expert in chemistry and invented three of the most used explosives in the world. He later became a manufacturer of arms. In 1888, his brother died while visiting France and the press thought that Alfred himself had died. A French newspaper published an obituary that began like this, and I'm going to read it as I found it in the source. It said, The merchant of death is dead. It further read, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Alfred was really shocked at the way people saw him, so that was when he decided to use his vast wealth to make a positive difference in the world. Since then... The foundation, which was set up with 250 million US dollars in funding, now hands out prizes to people who have made great contributions to humanity on an annual basis. He, through his good works, has been able to change his legacy from the margins of death to one of the greatest philanthropists of all time. The next story is one that hits very close to home for me, both literally and figuratively. 
The NSARS hashtag has been trending, at least in Nigeria, North America, and England, over the last few weeks. You may have seen it, you may not, but don't get it twisted. SARS does not refer to the virus. Over the last 11 days, Nigerians, mostly led by the youth, have staged nationwide peaceful protests against incidents of police brutality inflicted by a unit called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad. That is where we get the name SARS. The recent protest started when a video allegedly showed SARS officials shooting a man in Delta State, one of the Nigerian states, before driving off in the guy's car. It sparked what has become the current protests. Police denied the violence and responded to peaceful protests in the only way the protesters were saying not to interact with them, with violence, using tear gas, water cannons, and live rounds. As the protests spread all over the country, the government, for the fourth time in as many years, announced that the unit will be disbanded. However, they were going to be redeployed across the Nigerian police force. Hearing this, the protests continued until October 20, 2020, which is now going to go down in history as Bloody Tuesday. On that day, unarmed protesters most of whom were singing the national anthem, were shot and many were killed by the armed forces. Something I would like to highlight is the organization of the protests. Food, shelter, even phone charging stations were provided at the various protest sites. Alcohol was even disallowed, and remembrance ceremonies filled with candlelights were held for those who had been victims of police brutality. The protesters asked for five things. First, the immediate release of all arrested protesters. Second, justice for all those who are killed by police and compensation for their families. Third, an independent body to investigate and prosecute police misconduct within 10 days of a claim. Fourth, an independent psychological evaluation of disbanded SARS officials before they can be redeployed. And five, an increase to the salaries for police so they are adequately compensated for protecting lives and property. The fifth point might be a shock to some people, so I will quickly explain it before moving on. The Nigerian police force is notoriously undercompensated. In fact, I challenge you to Google Nigerian police barracks and look up the images. You can see the level of degradation that some police officers live in. In fact, an article released by Paul's newspaper this year likened their barracks to living in a goat pen or in a horse stable. The buildings are rotten with no running water and some have to form a queue just to use the bathroom. Even with the abuse a lot of Nigerians have suffered at the hands of law enforcement, a lot of Nigerians, like myself, empathize with their plight. Nobody should have to live like that. Keeping that in mind, we all know that it is no surprise that police brutality and profiling happens globally. Profiling happens maybe because of race, gender, appearance, or so many other things. In the case of Nigeria, the SARS unit in particular has been notorious for profiling youths with laptops. Yes, you hear that right. Laptops, nice cars, and so forth. In fact, some of the signs read, an iPhone is not a gun. In a report called Time to End Impunity released by Amnesty International in June 2020, 
They noted that the Nigerian authorities had failed to prosecute a single police officer from the notorious SARS, despite anti-torture legislation that had been in place since the year 2017. The report cites a few examples, one of which is the story of a 23-year-old man named Miracle. Miracle was arrested and detained by SARS officers in Anambra State, southeast of Nigeria, accused of the theft of a laptop. He was tortured and given hardly any food during the 40 days when he was in detention before he was subsequently charged and brought before a court. As Miracle narrates it, their leader directed them to go and hang me. They took me to the back of the hall and tied me with ropes. They then started using all manner of items to beat me, including machetes, sticks, inflicting me with all kinds of injuries. One of the officers used an exhaust pipe to hit me on the teeth, breaking my teeth. I was left on that hangar for more than three hours. Let that settle in. Since 2016, Amnesty International has documented 15 cases where SARS officers arbitrarily confiscated suspects' property. Note that these are documented cases. According to the organization, young people between the ages of 17 and 30 are most likely at risk of arrest, torture, or extortion by SARS. They are often accused of being internet fraudsters or armed robbers. Young men with dreadlocks, ripped jeans, tattoos, or nice cars are frequently targeted by SARS. Young women are not spared, so don't think it's all on the men. Al Jazeera reports the story of Pamela, a 23-year-old woman who was brutally assaulted after she was arrested on July 28 of 2020. Pamela was traveling on a public bus on her way to Potakot. Upon reaching the checkpoint in the town of Sakpenwa at 6.30 p.m., she says that four police officers arrested her for not wearing a face mask. Then, she told Al Jazeera that it drove her to a guest house where one of the officers raped her till dawn after threatening to kill her if she did not cooperate. She is not the only one, though. In May this year, the hashtag JusticeForTina trended across social media. The 16-year-old girl was shot by a police officer for no apparent reason, and no reason has still been given to this day. According to Amnesty International, the problem goes beyond SARS. The broader Nigerian police force is responsible for hundreds of extrajudicial executions, unlawful killings, and forced disappearances every single year. Police formed SARS in the year 1992, and they were formed to tackle violent crimes such as car hijacking, armed robbery, and kidnapping. Because they were initially designed to be a covert force, their officers do not typically wear uniforms. Subsequently, this unit developed a reputation for their brutality, and they, in essence, became the very thing that they were put together to stop. So what has happened since October the 20th? Those officers have been redeployed. The government has released inconsistent reports of injuries in terms of both number and severity, and there have now been widespread looting in shops while most people stay at home. While this is happening, education campaigns are starting to go around with the goal to explain what the youths are actually fighting for. So in a sense, the situation is both devolving and evolving at the same time. In a system where oppression is ingrained, 
The road to justice will be a slow but sure uphill struggle. What's next? Why should you care? As Desmond Tutu said, those that are neutral in times of injustice have chosen the side of the oppressor. The world stood up to support black lives in America because we saw blatant dehumanization. The world needs to stand up and against oppression everywhere, and not just in places where it is economically feasible or advantageous to do so. Oppression thrives when everyone looks away. With all that, one thing is for sure. Nigerian youths have found their voice, and not even gunshots will be loud enough to drown it out. Enough is surely enough. Our next story takes us to Ireland, where in a bizarre crime, a young Dublin drugs courier who lost a bag containing 40,000 euros or about 47,000 US dollars of cocaine phoned a police station to report it missing. Yeah, that happened. While the case is only just being heard in criminal courts in Ireland, the incident happened two years ago. In 2018, a young Mr. Barnwell, who had traveled by train, got into a state of panic after he got off the train and then realized he no longer had the drugs. He got into an argument with security staff that did not allow him back on the train to look for his lost property, and later he rang the police to report his lost bag. He subsequently found the bag in a store, but police stopped him just after he had retrieved the bag and then they discovered all the goods in it. Oh well, he has now pleaded guilty and has been given a four-year suspended sentence. I included this story because it was ridiculous. Honestly, it was just ridiculousness. I just included it. Sorry, guys. In our final story, Yemen's microgrid girls are powering their community in the middle of war and in the middle of a pandemic. Last year, 10 women in Abs set up a solar microgrid. Abs is a rural district in the north of Yemen, near the border with Saudi Arabia. It is just 32 kilometers or 20 miles from the front line where a war that has killed tens of thousands and left more than 3.3 million people displaced is taking place. The project is one of three that the United Nations Development Program helped to put in place in the front line of grid communities of the country. The app station is the only one run entirely by women. The other two located in Banikwe district near Abs and Lihij governorate in the southern part of the country are managed by 10 young men each. 30% of them are displaced people. The solar microgrid provides the community with cheaper, clean, and renewable energy while also tracking while also tackling another major issue in this part of Yemen helping young women earn a stable income and gain new professional skills. Before the arrival of these grids, rural communities were reliant on diesel generators, polluting, expensive, and susceptible to sudden shifts in the price of fuel. Yemen ranks at the bottom of the UN Gender Equality Index, and there are limited work opportunities for women, especially in rural areas. So. Even though it's just 10 women, it is a story worth celebrating. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I always feel awkward ending these, so I'm just going to say, have yourselves a great week.
Thanks for listening, friends. As a reminder, the podcast is released weekly. Subscribe or follow across social media to be notified when a new episode is released. Overlooked is a Tunuka Media production, which also includes shows like Africa in My Kitchen, with more on the way. Follow Tunuka Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to connect to say hi or to be on the forefront of upcoming shows and program schedules. Until next time, I'm your host, Yemi.